Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Evan with the message. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. Yeah, we all know that song, right? Yeah. It was, it, it's an iconic song. It's one of those songs that you're just like, yeah. Even people who don't know who the Beatles are know that that's the Beatles. They're like, oh, yeah. The song was uh, written by John Lennon, and it was first performed as part of the One World Celebration. It was a celebration uh, worldwide of unity. It was a, a live televised event, which was a big deal. Um, and, and there were no politicians allowed. They didn't let anybody um, come on except artists. And they came on and they, they did different uh, pieces of artwork. And the Beatles were contracted to provide a song that could be understood by everyone. Could be understood by everyone and used basic English terms. And there were, there were a couple songs written by the group, but this one was chosen for its simplicity and its worldwide message and appeal. And of course, the song went on to become very famous um, and has been used all over the place. It was also, it was most recently done, if you're a television-watching person like I am, you'll know that Katy Perry most recently redid the song for a commercial for Gap Clothing. Fun facts. I'm not trying to sell Gap clothing here today. The song drew praise as well as critique. I was surprised as I did uh, some digging into the song um, how much critique there was about how, in fact, simple it was and how, you know, it was not actually a good work um, by the Beatles. But it cannot be denied that it sparked conversation and it spoke to people on a universal Level. It came to be known uh, as the, uh, the theme song for the flower generation. It was a powerful song because I think it spoke to a deep human need. The Beatles, like so many who do art, named this human desire for love. Artists through the ages have named and mused on love. In fact, I would say that love is probably the most popular topic in the arts. That's just my own personal opinion. You may have others. Jackie Wilson sang about how your love keeps lifting me higher. And Marvin Gaye bragged that ain't no mountain high enough to stop his love. For some reason, love involves high places. I haven't figured that one out yet. Elvis couldn't help falling in love, and Frank Sinatra was the original astronaut as love flew him to the moon. Prince was willing to die for his love, and Elton John wrote a song for his. The Righteous Brothers, well, they had a melody that just could not be chained. And Rihanna found love in a hopeless place. Adele will make you feel her love. Taylor Swift has songs for when love is good and bad. And Whitney Houston, the, the, 
the chart that I read said this was the number one love song of all time. Whitney will always love you. I thought about trying to belt it, and I decided that was a bad idea. I'm making better decisions in my life these days. Art is filled to the brim with reflections, proclamations, declarations, laments, and ballads all about love. I heard a saying once that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. And that's not to say that anything is true. That's not to say that everything is true. It's to say that anything that is true is true because God has ordained it to be so. One does not need to be a follower of Christ to come into contact with the truth, nor to name it. An atheist does not need to believe in God as creator to walk on the ground that he created. And a philosopher need not believe in God to see that human beings have a need for love. All truth is God's truth. I studied religion and philosophy in college, and I found myself being drawn especially to the ancient Greek philosophers who were looking at the world around them and trying to figure out what was going on, what was the purpose and the meaning of life. And it was interesting to study the works of the ancient philosophers alongside of Scripture and to see that despite their lack of belief in God, they were stumbling upon things that I could find in Scripture. All truth is God's truth. I think our artists have stumbled on this deep truth that love is a deep part of the human existence. Yet for as much time as has been spent by our culture dwelling on love, I think the most honest questions are asked by groups like Foreigner as they cry, I want to know what love is. Or Hadaway, who said, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. For all of its philosophizing, the culture doesn't seem to have a really good grip on what love is. That word is thrown around all of the time, and yet the meaning of it seems to be very elusive. We have not yet grasped what the meaning of true love is as a culture and how we might live it out. Today, I'd like to look at some scripture and to ask the question, what is love from God's point of view? What is the love that Christ offers us? And how might we share that love with the world? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. God, as we dive into these scriptures, God, would you illuminate them for us? Would you open them up? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Surprise, surprise. The week before Christmas, and we're going to talk about the Christmas story. We've been talking about 
themes of Christmas as we uh, come up to the big day itself. And today, on the fourth Sunday of Advent, we read the story of Joseph and his love. uh, Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to, the, to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. One of the other things that I like to talk to my students about is context. Context is king. You have to know what's going on around the story to understand the meaning of the story itself. And so we try to, when we read scripture, do a little bit of context work, understanding the story that surrounds the story, understanding the habits and the customs of that day and age so that we don't get it wrong. We often look at scripture with our Western eyes. We, we, we read our Western cultural mindset into Scripture, and so sometimes things don't make sense to us, and we think it's off base, but just because it doesn't make sense to us didn't mean it wouldn't make sense to them. And so Derek talked about this a little bit uh, several weeks ago of, of Jewish marriage customs, the circumstances that would surround a Jewish Marriage, And it's important that we understand these things so that we can understand what is happening in this specific story. To recap uh, some of what Derek said, in that day and age, again, sorry ladies, but life was not great for you guys. It was, you were not treated fairly. It was wrong. We've gotten a little bit better. Hopefully we can continue that trend. But a, a, a group of parents would come together and they would make a decision for their children. Or, or a husband would come and, and would uh, barter, uh, would, would determine a price for a bride. And the bride had no say in the matter. And so this is what happened. A deal was struck so that Mary and Joseph would come together to be married. There wasn't a long dating process. 
They didn't, you know, go out for milkshakes on a Friday night to get to know each other. In fact, they probably did not meet each other until, or, or didn't know, didn't see each other until the moment that they were to come together to be married. So when that time would come, it was a two-part affair. The first would be when, an, when the agreement was struck, when, when the papers were finalized and the marriage was made legal. And at that point, Mary and Joseph would have been legally husband and wife, though they may have had little to no contact with each other at the time. And so this is what happens. Mary and Joseph become husband and wife, but then what would happen is the husband would return to his family and go to prepare a place for his bride. We see this language in Scripture over and over and over again, where God says he has gone to prepare a place for us so that we might be with him. When we understand cultural context, it makes more sense to us that God, this is what God is doing. Just like a husband would for a wife, he was going to prepare a place for Mary so that she could come and be with him. Now, I had the privilege in college to be able to study abroad in the Middle East. Um, I was I was kind of an idiot, but still am sometimes. But I, it was my senior year. I had finished almost all of the classes that I had needed to finish, but I didn't want to graduate early. So I thought, why don't I go on an adventure? And so I signed up for this program thinking, I'm going to go walk where Jesus was. And I got myself into a like Middle Eastern conflicts semester, and it messed my whole life up. But it was great at the same time. And what was cool is we stayed just outside of Bethlehem. Um, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem is about a 30-minute-ish bus ride, depending on traffic. But where we were staying was on the hills just outside of Bethlehem. And so we could walk down the hill, go through a checkpoint, and be in the city of Bethlehem, which was modernized but still had much of the feel I mean, of an ancient Near Eastern city, as much as I can gather. I wasn't there when it was ancient. But what was great about that experience was we got to have a homestay. We didn't, we didn't do it. Some people stay in locals' homes for the whole semester. We did it for a week. We stayed in dormitories most of the semester, but for a week, we got to live with a Palestinian family who was living in Bethlehem. And it was a great experience. We lived this, with this little old lady and her husband and her older daughter, and they were fantastic. They were super, the most hospitable people I think I've maybe ever met. We would go to class at the school all day, and we'd come back, and literally every day we came back from class, they would be sitting on the porch waiting for us with tea, and we would sit for like an hour and a half and just talk about our classes. I was like, this is, this is weird. And the tea was fantastic. And I'm a coffee drinker, so... You know, Middle Eastern tea. But what was cool is it wasn't just this little family. It was her entire family. Because what was true of her house was that, that this, this woman, she lived with her husband and her uh, daughter on the first floor. They had a, a, an extensive first floor, but that was where they lived. And if you went outside onto the porch, there was a set of stairs that went up to the second floor. And that was where her son and his family lived. And 
On that porch, there was another set of stairs that led to the third floor. And that was where her other son and family lived. The, they would literally like stack houses on top of each other. They were all one level, but they were just there. And so every day we would come home from school and there would be you know, nieces and nephews running around and we got to know the, the children pretty well because they would be there as well. It was a great family atmosphere. But this is what was happening between Mary and Joseph. Joseph literally had to go home and build another floor of his house so that there could be a place for him to bring Mary home to. But while that was happening, they still would have no contact. They were not, they were not together at that point. They were married, but they were not together. And this is where we find Mary and Joseph in the scriptures. Joseph has yet to bring his wife home. And he finds out that she is with child. Now, most likely, Mary had had a conversation with Joseph about what had happened. And, and Joseph is wrestling with this idea that Mary's pregnant, but the child is from God. And so there's different interpretations about why he did what he did or what he was thinking of doing. But it says that upon finding out about the baby, he ponders divorcing Mary, but doing so quietly. It, the scripture says he was a law-abiding man. He wanted to follow the law. But he also was a good, kind man. And he did not want to expose Mary to the shame because she would be subject to stoning for infidelity. And so he is wrestling with these tensions, likely not out of an emotional attachment to Mary, but out of an understanding of culture, the, the shame that would come to him or to Mary should they go through with things. His attachment to the law, he was a just man, and he was trying to do what the law had commanded him to do. But yet as he wrestles with this thing, an angel of the Lord confirms Mary's story and urges Joseph to take her as his wife. It's always interesting when I read these stories and I dig into them a little deeper because thoughts come to me that I've never had about stories I've read over and over and over again. And it struck me this time as I read the story that Joseph ends up taking Mary as his wife not out of love for Mary. I, I don't think Joseph is like, I love this woman so much, I'm going to do this. No, Joseph takes Mary as his wife out of his love for God. Out of his love for who God is, what God has done for him, and out of his desire to honor God. So often in our Western cultural mindset, love is about emotion and connection between two people. You hear people say, well, I just don't feel it. I'm just not feeling it. Or when things aren't going right, they'll say, well, I, I'm just, I fell out of love. In our understanding culturally of love, it is so often about the feelings and emotions. 
But in this context, Joseph isn't driven by a selfish, self-serving love that is about his plans, about his life. But he is committed to God, and his love for God drives him to obedience. He is committed to God's plan of redemption. And Joseph sacrifices his own plans, his own life, so that he can obey God and take care of Mary and Jesus. The child is given the name Emmanuel. And his role is to save the people from their sins. This has been the mission of God all along. Again, the culture's definition of love is selfish and self-serving. It's focused on my wants, my desires, and what's going to bring about my happiness. But the love of God is vastly different. It is a love that doesn't give up on broken sinners. It pursues us despite our betrayal. We are the ones that crossed God, not the other way around. We are the guilty party. God's love pursues us and it sacrifices for our well-being. Christmas is a time of, of, of lots of things. Joy, bright lights, good feelings, presents, Christmas music. I don't know how you feel about Christmas music. I like it. It's good. But Christmas has become about so many things. But if we really think about it, it's all about a loving God who steps into a broken and bleeding world to save the very people who have hurt him the most. Christmas is the beachhead in the rescue mission of humanity. Christmas, Christ coming to be with us, is about a sacrifice. It is the beginning of the life of Jesus as a human as he is on his way to the cross. And that is true love. True love is about commitment and sacrifice. It is about lifting up others above ourselves, not just good feelings. One of my favorite stories that displays this is the story of Hosea. You can turn with me to Hosea 1 if you'd like. Um, I'm going to read it, but... Um, you may or may not be familiar with the story of Hosea. It's one of those smaller, minor prophets, um, but it's become one of my favorite uh, stories in Scripture. I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 1, just the first couple of verses. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Bere, during the reign of Uzziah, the reigns, excuse me, of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. Context, this is after David, before the exile, okay? It's after King David, but it's before Israel was carried off into exile. And Israel, the people of God, were going through this kind of roller coaster of faithfulness to God. Sometimes they were dedicated, sometimes they were not. And it was 
on a downward trend. You know, there were some highlights, but overall, Israel was walking away from God. Verse 2, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is, a, this is a wild story to me. Wild. I grew up Presbyterian. Most of the time when I think about God, he's a very proper, suit-wearing, rule-following, traditional God. And here, in the first couple of verses of this book, God commands one of his servants to go and marry a promiscuous woman. That's wild to me. I don't know if that's wild to you, but that's wild to me. So he commands Hosea to go and marry this woman, Gomer, who is clearly giving herself all over the place to lots of different men. But Hosea is obedient, and he marries her. And they have children together. And what happens? What you think would happen. Gomer goes back to her old lifestyle and leaves to go be with another man. She continues her adulterous ways. And God commands Hosea, I want you to go, and I want you to buy her back and bring her back home with you. And so he does. He goes to them, finds them together, negotiates a price for his own wife, pays the price, and then brings her back. This is a wild story to me, friends. I hope that at some point today you can sit down and think about that for a little while in real life. Imagine that happening in your life with you know, your brother-in-law or something like that. That's just crazy. But of course, the whole thing is meant to be about a story. It's, a, it's an understanding so the people of God can grasp what is happening in their lives. God says, just like this land... Just like a promiscuous woman, this land, this people have constantly given themselves away. They have been adulterous towards their God. And yet in this story, God is about redemption. He is about bringing them back. If you read, seriously, take some time to read the book of Hosea. Um, it's crazy. You'll see God after this launches into a scathing rebuke of Israel. I mean, bad. He doesn't mince words. He, he sticks it to them. This is exactly what you did. You know what you did. This is how you acted. But I love chapter 11, because in, in the middle of this scathing rebuke of the people of Israel, God says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to other gods and they burnt incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, 
taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. There is this love in the very middle of this scathing rebuke. God shows that in the midst of his anger, he still loves his children and he still desires them to return. Chapter 11 is God's love in the midst of pain. I love that this book doesn't, it doesn't romanticize the story, okay? It's not like a Hallmark movie or whatever where it's just like, Oh no, things are bad. Oh, things are good. No, no, like there is pain. There is heartache. There is brokenness in the writing. And we understand the pain that God feels because his children walked away from him. The anger over the betrayal. But yet what we also see in the story of Hosea is God's deep affection for his people. Friends, this is love. Romans 5, verse 6 says, For at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's verses um, 6 through 8. Paul in this passage is saying that the proof of God's love is found in the fact that while we were still separated from him, he died for us. Not when things were going well, Not when it was the honeymoon phase. Not when life was treating everything Gucci. But when we were still far from God, he died for us. Not because we're beautiful. Friends, you don't have the love of God because you're beautiful. Because you're worthy, but you have the love of God because God loves you. You are worthy because God loves you. You are beautiful because God loves you. And he is committed to you. He is committed to you no matter what. We're going to close with a song. I'll invite the worship team to come up. This is, I would say, my favorite song of all time. I'll go that far. Um, the song is How He Loves, um, and it was written by a guy named John Mark McMillan. It was, it was uh, versions were done by others, but the song originally was written by the artist John Mark McMillan. And he, you can look this up on YouTube. He tells this story um, that as he was crafting this song, um, he had wrote the first line, and 
he'd shared it with a friend that he hadn't seen in a long time, but that he was close with. And they just never couldn't seem to, to get together on the same page and actually spend time together. But they, they hung out one night, and he shared the song, the, the first line of the song with this guy, Stephen. And Stephen said, that's my favorite song you've ever wrote, and it's going to make you famous one day. And John replies that he said, well, that's not a song, it's a line, and I'm never going to be famous. And he said that Stephen left that night, and before he left, he looked back and he said, I love you, man. And John responded, I love you too. And John said that was the last time he ever saw his friend Stephen. He was down in Florida later on and received a call that Stephen had been in a terrible car accident and he had died from his injuries. And as Macmillan sat with the pain of that loss, as he sat with the brokenness of life, he penned this song. And he said, this love of God, it's not about a pretty love. It's not about a sparkly, feel-good, fairy tale kind of love. It's about a love that is with us in our darkest moments. A love that can sit with us in the pain I would contend, friends, that this is a love that pursues us despite our adultery. This is a love that is not born in a palace, but that enters the world in a stable, in the mess, in the mire, and is laid in a manger. It's a love that is humble and powerful and strong and committed and sacrificial. Friends, if we look at the culture to help us understand what love is, we'll be left with a watered-down fairy tale. It is selfish, and it is shallow. But God's love is the kind of love that anchors us through life's many trials. It's not just a love that feels good. Friends, God's love is a love that conquers death. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.